Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us and trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great backhand! This week our guest is Dave Hannigan. Dave writes for the Irish Times, among other publications from his base in Long Island. He's also the author of numerous books, including Boy Wonder, De Valera in America, and Two on Muhammad Ali, Drama in the Bahamas and The Big Fight. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you and welcome. So this week we're looking at a copy of Shoot from the 3rd of October 1981. Uh, and on the front cover we've got uh, Ipswich v Sundown, that's Franz Tyson and uh, Ian Munro, uh, jostling for the ball. Uh, Wilson and D team groups, World Cup action, the qualifiers for Spain 82 are midway through. Uh, Star Sports, Steve Perryman, Clough's threat to Burns, the players' verdicts on Frank Stapleton, Super Soccer Clocks to be won, three inside team tabs for the third and fourth divisions, and uh, we'll look at the cover price, 25 pence, Australia, 55 cents, Italy, 1,500 lira, and uh, in Ireland, 36p. Uh, lots of colour on the cover there, and uh, I think two good strips there in Ipswich and Sunderland, and the tango ball. Uh, so first thing I asked, Dave, were you a, a regular purchaser of shoot in the day? I absolutely was. Shoot was like the holy book uh, for me, you know, between the ages of like maybe eight to 13, four. I would have been 10 for this edition. Like, so this was right smack bang in the middle of my addiction. You know, every Thursday, every Thursday I would go to do the grocery shop with my mother and uh, for helping her. Then I would go, there was a little news agent called the Read and Write. And I would go to Read and Write and get, get that week's shoot. And uh, every so often, like they wouldn't have for whatever, there would be a delay and they wouldn't have the new one. And the, the shop assistant would try to fob me off with last week's, which was like <laughs> incredibly insulting and you know, <laughs> demeaning. How dare she? You know, I'm waiting for this with bated breath every Thursday. And it would be gone. Like I would be gone through it. Maybe apart from the crossword, I'd be gone through it by Friday morning. You yeah. know, um, it was just. It was that it was it was an appointment for me every week which shoot absolutely it was because you know it's hard for 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 kids today to understand and even people slightly younger than me i'm 50 to understand that this was our window into the football world this was there was no internet this was our internet this was yeah. our glimpse and and where we got information and if you were an anorak which i think most of us who read shoot were kind of anoraki you know <laughs> If you were an anorak, shoot was was where you picked up all these snippets of information that you would then go in, bring into school with you and and you know boast about or, or you know pretend to be incredibly knowledgeable, uh, you know, with all, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So so on on this particular copy at the very top, you may well be familiar with what's going on there. Would you have had a, an address or a name written onto yours just to you know keep it aside? This one says fifty-two no, F, I think it says fifty-two F. No, I, I wasn't that bad. I mean, I I had them all in a in a box that was, um, you know, there was nobody in my house. My older brother was too old for it, so there was nobody in my house going to steal them. <laughs> and they never left. They never left the house. And in yeah. fact, when, when we cleaned out the family home a few years ago, most of them had to be thrown out because they were moth-eaten and and degraded. But I did manage to save a few, um, a few which I I now you know, contain, you know, try to look after them and make them pristine. But no, I never wrote, I never wrote on them. In mm. fact, the only thing I'd ever, I, what I would do from time to time is if there was pictures of my favourite players, and I was a big Aston Villa fan at this point, because it was 1981, Aston Villa were in their pomp, they were winning the league and then about to win the European Cup. 
I would pick, cut out pictures of Gary Shaw, who features in this edition mm. that we're discussing and was a shoot columnist. Pictures of Gary Shaw, people like that. And, and, and you know, if there was a Maradona picture, because um, he was coming on stream around that time as well, anything like that, I would cut out and put on my wall. So I was defacing them, I suppose, a little bit by clipping out the pictures. See, I, 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 I've collected them for, again for a, for a number of years, and you're the sort of person that I have to thank because I've been able to collect ones in pristine condition, whereas, you know, it's me and my, my three brothers and a sister, and there's no way those magazines were going to stay in, in a, you know, in, in this sort of state. You know, you, you would have things cut out. We used to use the, the team photos to make cards, so we would cut out the faces and stick them onto a card from a cereal packet and play on a Sabutio pitch with them. So we used to get our money's worth out of that. The one thing I remember my brother doing to annoy me is drawing facial hair on, on some <laughs> of the players. You know, I'd open it and I'd be, because I've already, re I'd have read it once and I'd open it again and I'd be rereading it. And then I suddenly noticed like, you know, Gary Shaw would have a, have a black pirate's beard on his face. Mm. Uh, stuff like that. You know, there, there would be some hooliganism yeah. and vandalism. I, I, and the funny thing, of course, about living in America now is... is I obviously have a reputation as an anorak because a neighbor came up to me a couple of years ago and just gave me six boxes of Sports Illustrated magazine, which is, you know, more grown up, I suppose, than shoot. But Sports Illustrated magazine going back uh, to the 70s and 80s, and they're just in my basement. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I have no room in my basement. There are other people's collections. And I'm like, no, I think I just can't with good conscience. They have to stay there. You know? <laughs> yeah. From time to time, I'll open a box and read about 1970s baseball, about which I know absolutely nothing. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate that they are they're historical artifacts, if you want to describe it like that. Yeah. They're manuscripts from another time, <laughs> like Shoe Magazine. Yeah. So we'll be uh, open up and get into the magazine then. So yep. uh, first couple of pages, we've got <laughs> uh, a player's verdicts on Frank Stapleton. Stapleton's deadly. So Staple Frank Stapleton's not long transferred here from Arsenal to Manchester United. Did you have a relationship with Frank Stapleton when you were younger? Oh, well, I, I did in terms of like he was he was one of our Irish heroes, you know, he, he was one of our Irish heroes at that. He was part of, of an Ireland really. I mean, he was there for the start of the Charlton era when when we did well. But he was really part of that kind of hard luck, seven, late 70s, early 80s, when we had great teams, but would never, you know, we'd always find a way not to qualify. We were undone a couple of times by very dodgy refereeing decisions. Um, you know, but Stapleton, I mean, you know, he was he was leading the line for that Irish team with Michael Robinson, um, who later went to Spain and people like mm -hmm. that. And, and what, what struck me or what strikes me when I'm looking at this edition and when you look at any edition of Shoot is like that they were able to get players to speak about other players, mm -hmm. which I don't think today is nearly impossible. You know, Martin Buck and Alan Sunderland were players like just looking at that page. These were players playing for you know the biggest clubs, and yet they're willing to speak to this children's magazine with quite good quotes about about you know about about a fellow professional you know which is you wouldn't find that I don't think you'd find that today or you know that would certainly be a lot more difficult for any journalist to to pull off and and Frank the funny thing is you say I I, I later um, Frank Stapleton later ended up over here uh, managing in Major League Soccer. Uh, in the very first season of Major League Soccer, actually, with uh, the New England Revolution. <laughs> and it was always going to be a bad fit <laughs> because they, in America, they, they they need their managers like to have some sort of personality or charisma. <laughs> and Frank, that wasn't his forte. You know, I knew even before a ball was kicked, he wasn't going to last long in, in, uh, in New England because he wasn't cut out for that. You know, you got to be media savvy and you got to play the media game here. And he was never going to. He was never going to do that. But he was a great. I mean, he was a great centre forward. And I remember, didn't he go back and play centre half in, in an FA Cup final for um, for Man United as well when when Kevin Moore was centre. Oh, that was, was that nineteen eighty five? Was that the Everton game? Yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely one of those eighties cup finals because United were United would never win a league, but they'd be good for a cup. And uh, you know, Stapleton. No, he was. I mean, he was a very very good player. And, and you know, the really, when I was reading through this, here, there are just two words that struck me here that I completely forgotten about and blanked out the transfer tribunal. <laughs> right? What happened to that? I guess 
the Bosman kind of ruling got rid of that somewhere in the mid 90s, right? Mm -hmm. You remember that was a big thing, the transfer tribunal when when fees were being negotiated. And I presume it's just gone. I have never heard of it for years. Like, yeah, that's a good point. I can't remember who the last player was who had their fee decided by the transfer tribunal. Yeah, that'd be a great anorak quick, you know, quiz <laughs> question. So yeah, so it says there that Arsenal were looking for two million pounds, but the tribunal awarded them only one point one million. <laughs> that seems like a fairly steep uh, drop there from two to one point one, right? It's such a recipe for bad, bad feeling and bad blood, isn't it? The, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, and the, the the thing about the the weird thing about transfer fees is is when I first moved here, I, and I would be explaining to people about how how you know football, professional football in Britain and Ireland worked, they couldn't believe that there was a money price put on an individual because over here they they trade as they call it, they trade players, and they trade you know I'll give you my best player if you give me your four best young players. You know, they can't, as the fellow said to me, it's like they're like pieces of meat where they put prices on them. So it was a very odd kind of outsider's view of the whole transfer fee mechanism. And and I presume at that time, Trevor Francis was was the record holder still then, was he? Or would it have been Steve Daly, like for the, the million dollar? Because the million dollar or the million pound player was, was still a big thing back hmm. then. Right? Yeah, I think Brian Robson gets transferred just around about this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one and a half. I think he went with Remy Moses. I seem to remember the two of them going together for a sort of combined fee. But yeah, I, I, you're right. It was, it was round about that sort of one million to one and a half million mark at that at that time, which was an enormous sum. Like, I mean, that that was yeah. that was a million a million pound player was was that was the kind of elite company, wasn't it at that point? Yeah. All right. So, uh, so Frank Stapleton. Uh, he scored that season, he scored 13 goals in 41 league games for Manchester United and then 14 and 41 the following season and then 13 and 42 in 83-84 and then it sort of goes down a bit into single figures. Uh, he gets 71 caps and 20 goals for, for Ireland. Uh, that's that's good going for Ireland. And he ended up at Ajax, right? He played in yeah, Ajax yeah. for a while. Yeah. He had a few games for Ajax, yeah. Yeah. He he had an interesting interesting career. He also, um, you know, there's he brought out a book, terrible terrible autobiography called Frankly Speaking. <laughs> Frankly Speaking was a terrible book, and uh, it was just an auto shoddy production, and it included captions like a picture of Frank Stapleton running on the field, and the caption me running. But. <laughs> 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 He was a he was a good player. I mean, you know, the numbers there are perhaps not not you know those early numbers at United aren't stellar, but uh, he was he was a good centre forward in that in that era, you know, in that time. So uh, also in page three here we've got a bit called "Get Back to Basics." So England have just lost in a World Cup qualifier to Norway, and uh, this wee piece is about effort versus reward for playing for your country. Uh, and so this this is of course the the famous uh, England defeat to Norway. Your boys took one hell of a beating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Norwegian television commentator beyond beyond Minge, if you remember yeah. that. Yeah, that 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 one was later though, right? The, you you boys took a hell of a beating. Well, that, that, was, that, that was this. That, that was this one. Oh, that was the, I thought that was later. The, the, again, when I when I was reading this, like it, it made me sad because I. You know, England are so good now. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I look at the England squad and I'm like, God, they really have a really good good team and a you know great first eleven and a really deep squad. And you know, they're talking about Jack Grealish might not even be in their team. And I'm like, Jesus, they must be really handy. And and I remember, you know, England back then they didn't make the '84 Euros, right? They didn't make those. Um, you know, I, I preferred obviously winning more like this, and they would always have these these big inquests, like these big, you know, what's wrong with our game, and, and yeah. you know, the game is is, you know, the game is gone, and kind of that that whole kind of there was always an apocalyptic feel um, to to England failing, and of course the other thing is the Scots were very good at that point, right? Yeah. You know, you were on a run of, of qualifying for, you know, the World Cup all the time. Like, that was a kind of a thing that Scotland did. 78, 82 kind of thing. Yeah, 74, 78, 82, 86. Um, yeah, Jeez, 90, I forgot about 74. Yeah, the US 94 was the first one yeah. in ages that we, we didn't get. But you're right about England now. Is 
England are certainly for, for, for myself it's now a possibility that they could actually win something and and that possibility alone is, is quite frightening you know, the only thing that I'm clinging to is I do not believe that they have the right man managing England I don't think Gareth Southgate is the best man to get the best out of these players I always think that Southgate to me always looks like sort of like the assistant to the regional manager you know I don't think I don't think he's he maybe I'm wrong but maybe the English squad is so good that it doesn't matter that yeah. they'll just win in spite of him but he he's my last hope for England <laughs> well that and the fact that they're a bit dodgy at the back yeah. but I mean they have they have genuine flair players like you know I mean a, a Grealish obviously because he could have played for Ireland but he's he reminds me of Gascoigne in 1990, like the way that he the way that he plays and and the, you know the way he goes past people. He just has that something, and you're like, geez, you know, if he's in the Gascoigne role, you know, and they could go better than 1990 if they, you know, if they get a run at it. Mm. So yes, it, it is a grim it is a grim and frightening prospect for us all. Well, I, I I've lived in in England for 21, 22 years now, so that could be my excuse to move back up north. <laughs> if that happens, so we turn over the turn over the page here, and we're into a uh, news desk. So news news desk. So a couple of wee things to, to pick out here. So uh, Dave, Andy, and I are uh, both Clay Bank supporters, and there's a wee right. piece here about Clay Bank, uh, but it says supporters of Clay Bank won't have much to pay for their football this season. Uh, it's Cabrini Park's just become an old seat of ground. And the prices are now, for the rest of the season, £1 for adults and 50p for children. Shoot says, surely the cheapest admission prices in Britain. And also, uh, female fans get in for nothing as well. That's quite important. Really? Gee, yeah. I, that, that's very progressive for 1981. Like the female, you know, trying to get women, you know, trying to get women into the grounds. I know, obviously, today, you know, and for the last 25, 30 years, there's a lot more women at games. But that really seemed mm. progressive for then, right? Yeah, there's. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Tom, but there was, um, as I said, there was my, my three brothers and my sister, and then we went to a midweek game at Clydebank, around about this time it would have been, and my oldest brother didn't want to pay the 50 pence, so he got my sister's cagoul, put it on, put the hood up, zipped it all the way up, and then went into the, the, the girls' gate. But he got stopped, and the guy says... Excuse me, this is this is for girls only, or this is for lassies. And he turns around and goes, "I'm a lassie," and he walked in. And I just, I just saw the guy who said that must be. He probably still has nightmares about that, you know, that poor, poor lassie looking like that. But yeah, even back then, fifty pence for us was still a bit steep. I, I, as as Clydebank fans, guys, I wonder like the um, when I see Clydebank, I immediately think of. Of the plan, the ill-fated plan to transplant them to Dublin. Dublin, oh. <laughs> when, when such things were in fashion, Wimbledon were moving to Dublin, Clyde Bank were moving to Dublin. That was a really uh, strange kind of, you know, strange, you know, strange time in 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 football when, when people thought you could just, you know, up a club and move it, kind of move it to another country. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean that's a very divisive moment here for Clyde Bank. Clyde Bank fans still get angry about about that. Uh, if, if you if you mention it, yeah. Oh, I'd uh, imagine you. I'd imagine you would. I mean, it was just, you know, I I, I used to I, I when I lived in Ireland, I covered the Premier League, and I I remember being at a Wimbledon match when they were protesting. The fans were at the Wimbledon fans at Sellers Park were protesting their proposed move to Dublin, and that's how real it was. Like with Sam Haman and Sam Haman had to go over and address the fans who wouldn't leave the ground at the end of a game on a Saturday afternoon. Because you know the re- it was a that was I think that the Wimbledon to Dublin one had more momentum behind it and more money more big money behind it than the Clyde Bank one yeah, which I always thought was a the Clyde Bank one was a bit of a, a bit of a flyer like yeah I oh, know it was a bit of a pie in the sky idea kind of thing but yeah we get we get sorted out in the newspapers here the Daily Light and the Sunday Mail etc. A couple of the players sort of got behind it, and they've just absolutely persona non grata. One of the one of the players who really should be a sort of Claybank legend, the fans just don't don't have any time for him because he he backed it uh, at, the, at the time, perhaps a bit naively. I don't think there was any malice behind it, but yeah, it's a strange, it's a it's a strange, it's a strange, or you know that those were strange kind of those were strange enterprises. Yeah. 
So let's have a look at some of the other wee things on these pages here. Um, Franny's Fine Philly. Franny Lee's Philly. Uh, Mar- Marquette, I don't know how to pronounce that. Marquessa Hoffman uh, won £4,832 prize money in York recently. And Lee also picked up an extra £292 in a side bet. <laughs> I think that, that's kind of... Again, it's a kind of like we were saying earlier on, it's a sign of the times. I don't think you'd ever get articles talking about players pocketing trivial sums of money or, or even any kind of cash figures like no, that in the articles. No, that would be, you know, and, and you again, you wonder, like, I mean, I know there were good, there were there were people who worked for, for, for Shoot who went on to become, you know, broadsheet sports writers and stuff like uh, Chris Davies, who, his name pops up in this one who later wrote for The Telegraph. That's great information, you know. That's that's a good reportage. Like, how the hell? I, I presume Franny Lee just told them. Like, they were just so <laughs> open about these things. And didn't Franny Lee then go on to buy Man City, or wasn't he? Yeah. Later, like, was that early nineties, maybe? Because he did make a lot of money. Um, so you know, says he has built up a thriving paper company in Lancashire. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, like, you know, what I love about this is. You never imagine, like, you know, you'll ever read about David Silva, who has built up a thriving paper company in <laughs> Lancashire. You know, Vincent Company, who now runs a pub in uh, just outside Manchester. Yeah. You know, would never, it, again, it, it's an old, you know, I mean, the, the game that we're discussing here, like, is, as I say, is about as relevant to today as Charles Dickens' London was to us growing <laughs> up, you know. It's like, we were like, really? This is how it was back in the day, you know. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of other wee things here. There's a bit there that says Mullery's video show, and it's about Charlton boss Alan Mullery. is video recording every home game so the players can see what they did wrong or right during matches. Mullery said, when you tell the players they haven't done too well, half believe you and half don't. This way they can see for themselves. And again, they've got middles for a boss, Bobby Murdoch, uh, also taught his players a lesson by running a video recording of the team's 3-1 defeat by Spurs on the coach. I hope it embarrasses him, says Murdoch. <laughs> uh, again, sort of uh, interesting uh, at that time as well, filming games and using it as a sort of training exercise for players. I, I'd imagine they were ahead of their time there. Like, that's really groundbreaking kind of stuff, isn't it? Mm. You know, the, the, the video. Think of, like, how much video analysis i mean that's somebody's job now or that's probably a whole office full of people at a major club now you know video analysis of their games and the opponents that they're about to play but these guys alan mullery and bobby murdoch you know were obviously ahead of the game and and you can see bobby murdoch you know they got a one-all draw at liverpool that was a very good result (laughs) back then against that against that liverpool against that liverpool team and there's another story there, uh, just across from that, with Peter Knowles, uh, the Wolves star who quit football 12 years ago to become a Jehovah's Witness. Now, I was 10 reading this when I, when I first, you know, when I would have been reading this edition of Shoot. I have no memory of Peter Knowles, apart from I learned of him through Billy Bragg's, Billy Bragg's song, song yeah. God's Footballer, you know, which, I, which is a beautiful, beautiful song. And, and I, I was asked the first thing I saw when, I, when that, or the first thing I thought of, uh, when that came to mind, because I never knew the story. Obviously, if you retired in the seventies, it was before my time. But it was—it always struck me as a fascinating, fascinating story. Yeah, and Wills retained his registration, so he was a—he was a Wills player until nineteen eighty-two, although he played his last game in September sixty-nine. For Wills. Oh wow! I didn't know that. That's but a, a succession of managers kind of hoped he was going to come back. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't understand what he's saying here. Well, I understand what he's saying, but I don't know why. But he's saying about Kenny Hibbert, um, it was a testimonial. And he said, mm-hmm. he offered to play in the game because he told me I was the only Wolves player who had not approached him with a request to play. So basically he says, I'll play because he hasn't asked me, whereas <laughs> everybody else has asked me, so I'm not going to play. I don't know how that works. I wonder, was it like that, you know, given, given what you just said about his registration, like that he, maybe he had, uh, you know, that it was an annual thing where they'd ask him, mm-hmm. you know, are you interested in coming back? And, and when he heard about Hibbert, who'd never asked him, then he just said, whatever, I'll turn up, I'll turn up for that. <laughs> yeah. And there's a wee bit there on the briefly section that says, did you know Ray Clements once played left back for Skegness Reserves in the Lincolnshire League's? Uh, and I looked it up a wee bit, and uh, Ray Clemens started out as a centre forward 
but then was a defender in his early teens uh, before one day Lumley Secondary Modern School team found themselves short of a keeper. Uh, as a kid at Skegness Town at the time when George Rayner uh, was, was the manager, he'd played at left back and Clemens was quoted as saying, had I stayed there, I would never have progressed beyond non-league football. Oh, and such and such things that does life turn and again you know reading through this the sad thing is when the names pop up like you know Ray Clements the first name in this edition and you're like he, you know his death his death recently was um, or you know a few months back was kind of one of those deaths they are like you know he was synonymous with the football you watched in the 70s and 80s yeah. you know he was synonymous with shoot magazine he was a, a columnist with shoot so when he died, even though I wasn't a Liverpool fan or a Spurs fan, I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, there's something really sad about that. Like, you know, for, for me, Clements is always this guy. I mean, obviously he won a lot with Liverpool, but I just always picture him uh, on the other end of that Justin Fashion goal, you know, the, the Norwich, Justin Fashion's goal for Norwich. Clements is always stretching uh, in vain to kind of claw that one back, you know. Um, he, he, I have that very vivid, vivid memory of seeing him on match of the day, uh, seeing that goal and him on the other end of it on match of the day. So anything else on these pages? Uh, yeah, there, there was one other guy who, again, you know, um, like Kenny Hibbert. If somebody said to me Kenny Hibbert, I'd say Wolves. Like there was, there was so many players then who were synonymous with their clubs. They were like part of the fabric of their clubs. And if you go back to the other page, Steve Foster um, with the headband yeah. and Brighton, you know, mm -hmm. Steve Foster was Brighton uh, to me, you know, that, that, that he was synonymous with that. And, and he, you know, I know he was there for a long time because I, I grew up with a guy uh, called Paul Parr playing against a kid called Paul McCarthy, who then in, in 87, 88 went to Brighton. And he was a center half and he was basically like Steve Foster. He was a clone of Steve Foster. He went from Cork. Um, he played on the same team as Roy Keane, actually. He was Roy Keane's teammate growing up. And Paul McCarthy went to Brighton where, where Steve Foster took him under his wing. And he was, you know, supposed to succeed Steve Foster. And he played quite a bit for Brighton. He ended up playing for Wickham and he had a very good career in the lower leagues, Paul McCarthy. But you know, the fact that he was playing with Steve Foster within a couple of years of playing against the likes of me was fantastic. You know, that was, that was, and unfortunately Paul McCarthy died, he died very young a couple of years back in, in his, in his mid forties, but he was a sensational player. And, and, you know, I mean, he would have went, scouts would have picked him to go to England when they would still be ignoring Roy Keane. You yeah. know, that Roy Keane, he would have went to England at 15 or 16 and Roy Keane would have stayed, would not yet have, Got any offers to go on trial? In so what, was, what was Roy Keane like at that age? Could could you could you see something in him or? Well, well the, the the problem that Roy Keane faced like was um, he maybe it wasn't a problem. He played on this incredible team, kind of a team of all the talents, as we used to call it. And they had uh, their best player was this you know classic old fashioned winger called Alan O'Sullivan, who went to Luton Town um, in eighty seven, maybe eighty six, eighty seven. Alan O'Sullivan was the greatest, you know, teenage player I ever saw in my life. Like literally the kind of winger who would just kind of go past four or five players routinely. Um, just an incredible talent. And he went to England first. He was the first one of that team to go over. And he he was with Luton. He was playing for the Irish Youth team, et cetera. And then he got injured. Classic kind of sad tale. He got injured playing for the Irish Youth team in an international and he, his career never recovered. Uh, and Keane was their kind of midfield dynamo, this narky kind of uh, force of nature in midfield. They were actually a year younger than me, but they used to play a year up. They'd win everything in their own age group. And then they would basically play a year up and, and almost win everything there as well. Uh, but they were, a, a, they just had an incredible team, like the, the Cork team, which was the select team of the best players in the city, like six of that team would have been from their team. Uh, so Keane wasn't the best player originally on that team, but he grew into the rope. He was very small as well, kind of a small mulleted uh, kind of midfield dynamo. But he, he then, you know, as time went on, you could see him just getting, you know, growing more and more into himself. And then by the time he was 17 or 18, 
it was a question of why he was not in England. And, it, and in fact, there's a great story that, you know, uh, Brighton, somebody told Brighton, look, you took Paul McCarthy from this team, you should come back for this guy, Roy Keane. And their Irish scout kind of poo-pooed the idea and said, no, uh, we're not taking him. Uh, so, you know, uh, on such things. But yeah, Steve Foster reminds me so much of that whole, you know, of, of that, because when, when Paul McCarthy was playing alongside him for Brighton, we couldn't, you know, that was incredible to achieve that, you know, to get that far and, you know, from, from leaving Cork just a couple of years earlier. So, uh, Andy, hand over to you. Yep, okay. So, you're more than aware of the focus on features in the magazine. So, it's just a, a set of standard questions. So, full name. Full name, David Hannigan. What's, what's your birthplace? Cork City. What was your first car? Mazda 121. Who's your favourite player of all time? Messi. Okay. Who's your favourite team? Cork City, my hometown team, and then Aston Villa would be my, my quote-unquote English, English team. Okay. What's the most memorable match that you've witnessed? In 1998, I was at um, uh, Holland and Argentina in the uh, FR, the World Cup quarterfinal. I think it was in Marseille. And I was working as a sports writer and I was doing a live report. And it was the Burkamp goal. You know, the Burkamp goal where yeah. the ball goes over the top and he, he, he pulls it down and then slots it home. And obviously, I had to rewrite the match report. <laughs> uh, but it was just, it was one of those moments of just like I was I because the press box at a World Cup is so big that I was kind of I wasn't on the halfway line. I was actually far more closer to where he was or far closer, you know, in line where 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 Burkamp was shooting from or where he took the ball down. And it was just one of those moments like where you're going, this is incredible. <laughs> I'm I'm here, I'm being paid to be here and to see this, you know, it was just it was just a great you know, great, great moment um, just to witness that. Mm. Okay, what's been your biggest thrill in your life? Birth of my kids. Okay, what's been your biggest disappointment? Birth of my kids. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, I, I think my biggest disappointment is is how this country that I've chosen to live in has gone completely nuts in the last 10 years and you know really really dissolved um america is a very different country even from the one i entered 21 years ago um that's my biggest disappointment i mean if i give you a sports disappointment i would like to give maybe that the irish the football association of ireland was run into the ground over the last 15 years and and the irish national team is now suffering as a result of of i won't name names of people running that association in a way that that was not kosher mm. and that saddens me because i think irish football will be decades recovering from that yep okay sorry those are two very different answers no no i'm, I'm, I'm fine absolutely fine with both of them and right. I, I, I feel you with the first one as well i, I think we we're getting a bit of that over here as well. So, mm. fingers crossed. Um, what's the best country that you visited? France. France. What's your favourite food? Hurley's sausages from Cork City. Okay. Miscellaneous likes. So, give me two things that you like doing. I like kicking a ball with my kids. And I like reading okay. reading books okay on the flip side miscellaneous dislikes so a couple of things that drive you up the wall oh that's a tough one organized the abuse of organized religion the abuse of organized religion in 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 the pursuit of political goals is number one um and the constant promotion of betting around sport the constant promotion of betting around sport i see it in in football in britain and i see it in every sport here and it's disgusting and it's doing incredible damage uh to people and families and society yep yeah yeah favorite tv show of all time deadwood 
Deadwood. Nice one. Favourite singers or band? Favourite band? <laughs> um, the Waterboys, who I think are Scottish slash Irish, right? <laughs> A little bit Irish, most mostly Scottish. Um, uh, they'll be my favourite band. And my favourite singer would be John Prine. Okay. Favourite actors? I'll let you have two. Um, what's his uh, what's his name? Lovejoy, the guy from Deadwood. Ian was McShane. In Lovejoy. Ian, McShane, Ian McShane. Ian McShane, right? Whose father was a winger with Man United, right? right. Ian McShane and uh, and Jennifer Lawrence. Okay. Uh, who's your best friend? My best friend. Uh, my best friend is uh, my friend Mark. He's a school teacher in England. Right. <laughs> he's a school teacher in England. Uh, he's uh, he's my best mate. Okay. Who's been the biggest influence on you? Uh, my father. Uh, he was not an educated man. He left school when he was 12, but he put books in my hand and he put magazines in my hand. And actually, um, he was a big man for going to the secondhand bookshop in my hometown and I would accompany with him there. And the woman who ran it would bring me in behind the counter and she had a super sir heater and she would uh, sit me down next to her as my dad would be browsing for like, you know, thrillers and, and crime novels and stuff. And she would basically let me look uh, through all the magazines. Now I would have all the shoots, but there was a magazine at that time too called Scoop. Yep. If you remember that Scoop yep. magazine, and then Roy the Ro she'd have old Roy the Rovers and old Tigers and and Hotspur and all those Warlord, you know, <laughs> all the other kind of comics. And I would sit with her, flicking through those and talking to her, while my dad would get books. And that was one of my favorite things. I was on a Tuesday night. He used to do that after work. Uh, so he put books in my hand and and encouraged me to read. And that was, um, you know, that's kind of been my life ever since. I suppose. Yep, great one. Next one. Last question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? That's a tough one. Um, I would say Messi. I would yeah. like to see, I would like to meet Messi because you don't see him talking that often. I'm not sure he's the most interesting guy in the yeah. world, but I would like, he's the one guy who, who like has, um, you know, I get into fights with friends of mine who are like Maradona, it's Maradona, it's Maradona. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, we love Maradona. Maradona was special, obviously, but but we never saw Maradona play that much. Like I have seen just about every game Messi has ever played. You know, like we have a highlight reel that's much more comprehensive. And, and you know, he's just, obviously he's not as interesting as Maradona. He's not as sexy as Maradona in terms of the, the madness and, mm -hmm. and the personality. But he is just a very, very interesting, it's it's interesting to me that this this small guy has kind of held us all in his thrall for, for, for so long, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think personally I flip between the two of them intermittently. Um, but I just think Messi's done it so consistently and also... Against against world class, what what I love about Messi is he makes world class players look very ordinary, as if they've just tried learned to play the game, and it's just amazing to see. It is, and like the Maradona thing, like you know, I mean, we all, I mean, men of a certain age when Maradona died, like that was just you know, that was just a moment in your life. Now that that you know you remember that, and and that kind of made you all kind of feel older or whatever, but. But we didn't see that much of Maradona, you know, we didn't. Like, I remember reading about Maradona in, in shoots, you know, world football pages. But you wouldn't see that much of him. Whereas Messi, you've seen everything since he's 16. Mm. Every game has been, and, and like you said, he's played against generations now of uh, a couple of generations of the world's best players and done it against all of them. You know, and it, it really... And, and I think when people look back at, at the last three or four years of his career, they're just going to say it is a miracle that he dragged that Barcelona squad, <laughs> the current Barcelona squad, you know, to anything because of, of some, you know, the aging nature of the squad, the really terrible, mediocre players. 
that they have around them at certain times. You know that I think his achievements, you know, whatever all these, all these La Liga titles, you know, it really is just incredible. Okay, that's the questions. Back over to you, Tom. Before we uh, back into the magazine, Dave, I was just going to uh, ask you about. Said at the beginning, a couple of your books are on Muhammad Ali, so I was going to ask if you had a sort of lifelong fascination with Ali. I did, yeah. I mean, I I uh, I had an uncle who was a big boxing fan. My dad's brother, and he'd have the Ring magazine up in his house. Um, now to get a to borrow one of his magazines to go back to being a collector, you'd nearly have to like give him your left kidney, you know, to to get one out of his house. But he, I would read them when we go to visit his house, and I I was always interested in in Ali, and um, yeah. You know, like everybody, but but the thing for me was, I suppose, when I became a sports writer, you discover that that so much of the great sports writing is about Muhammad Ali. You know, I mean, I had that childhood, like McIlvenny, um, you know, to, to quote a great Scotsman, like you, McIlvenny's work on Ali is just incredible. Like, I remember being given that by a sports editor of mine called Ger Siggins. I'm being told to read McIlvenny on boxing and McIlvenny on Ali in particular. And you really then, you know, realize how much, and then you discover the Americans who wrote about him, like Mark Cram and, and even Mailer and people like that. But for McIlvenny in particular, just just incredible, incredible stuff. And and um, I guess that's what kind of prompted it, prompted that that fascination. And I'm actually, I'm working on an Ali book right now. The first book was about Ali in Dublin in 1972, which was incredible moment of this you know black athlete arriving into the whitest country in the world and holding it captive for a week like the people were fascinated and then i wrote this very depressing book about his last fight <laughs> the drama in the bahamas which was inspired by McIlvenny's report for the observer on that fight and then um my current book is about ali in the 80s and 90s when he's in the wilderness when he's actually kind of a sad character and he's kind of off broadway and and just kind of his health is deteriorating and he's involved in all these dodgy business ventures, selling cookies and, and, um, you know, selling powdered milk to Sudan and just really is not, uh, you know, is not, not really doing well. And so that's kind of, yeah, he's, my, he's, he, he's my life's work, I guess, <laughs> at this point. It just be a total of Hugh McIlvenny then. I, I know for myself, writing about Scottish football, it's always great when you get the chance to quote something from from McIlvenny because he always had a, a really terrific turn of phrase for for things. Oh, it just like you know, as I say, you dip into the you dip into some of his stuff, and it, it's at this, it's it's at once it's incredibly educational and probably improving you as you're reading it, and then at the same time, it's like, well, there's nothing more to write. It's been written, you know, I, I mean, he was, you know, they use this phrase, like a man of letters, like, geez, he was, he really was, was that, you know, I mean, he really was a man of letters in terms of, you know, this, this stuff. And it's not just, you know, the, um, it, it, it's not just the, the, you know, the stuff that he'd write about Ali, like a simple thing, like I remember him writing a piece about Liam Brady, when Brady was in Italy. And, and just, you know, obviously Brady was Irish, so we're interested in him. And he had this incredible career in Italy that really gets underplayed, I think. Uh, and But McAvenny went there to meet him. And, and it was just just so brilliantly written, like, and just such a great portrait of this player rendered by this wordsmith, to use that terrible phrase. But actually, it applies here. Like, he really was doing something with words uh, that the rest of us can't do, really. <laughs> All right, so we jump back to the magazine then, Andy. So page 10, we'll go to here. Page 10 is soccer souvenirs <laughs> and there's uh, bedspreads. Was this kind of thing either you wanted, you had, Dave, or you sort of coveted? Oh, this was, this was the great aspiration for me that I could <laughs> never get. I would never, I would bo bother my mother and bother my father. The ads... The ads in um, the ads in, in 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 this magazine like were just killers, you know. There was so much stuff in there that you wanted, and, and you know, like even when I'm looking at it, I can buy that now. Like I could have to buy that. Like I just didn't have sixteen ninety nine yeah. at that time, you know. And uh, it just is incredible. The ads I could look through the ads in old shoots for years because it's just it brings back so much memories of stuff you wanted and you couldn't 
get. You know, you coveted this stuff, but you couldn't afford it. Or we certainly couldn't afford it. And my mother would, you know, my mother would just fob me off. And then my dad would kind of it fob me off in a nicer way. <laughs> it was, you know, kind of half encouraging me. But yeah, the, the whole bedroom set, the rugs, you know, the, the duvet covers. Geez, everything here is, is, you know, stuff that stuff that we wanted and, and we could never, you know, that we, we could never afford, you know, or my mother, my mother would tell me we couldn't afford it. And I believe, I believe her, you know, mm-hmm. we had four kids. My dad was a doorman in the bank. So, you know, I, I, she wasn't lying, you know, she was doing her best with what she could, but yeah, I wanted all of this. I mean, everything, all of the small ads in here are stuff that I want. I, th- I think you can back that up, Tom, can't you, with uh, your new purchase that you were telling me about from this very magazine? Oh, what was it? Oh, yeah. As, as I was looking through uh, this yesterday, I saw that uh, Guinness uh, Facts and Feats book for 1982, and I went, I wonder if I can find that something. I bought it second hand. Yeah, you're a grown up now. You're actually in charge of the money. Like, you're yeah. in charge of the money. You can do whatever you want with it. You worked for it. It's fantastic. It's, you ever see that site, classicfootballshirts.co.uk? You know, it's like it's like porn for middle-aged men. You know, <laughs> you just go on there. You just go on there looking at all shirts and going, "Oh man, I want all of this and I want it now." I think I, you do. A, you do a bit of that, though, don't you? Buying classic shirts. Who me? Aye. Well, my my, my moment was um, wasn't a, a shirt. It wasn't even a magazine. It was Radio Rentals nineteen eighty two World Cup Wall Chart, and <laughs> I I I had one and. 1982 World Cup was my favourite and I had a wall chart then as well and a few years back I saw one on eBay and I just had to buy it and I've now got it framed and in my hallway and it's like there's no way anyone who came up with the idea of that wall chart in 1982 could have thought that somebody who meant 40 years later would have it framed and on the wall incredible <laughs> Well, you know, like, I, I think this is where we're a kind of a weird kind of generation in terms of this stuff, right? And I just, if you go forward there to page uh, page 12, the, the pictures of the Scottish team, right? It's pictures of Scotland versus um, Scotland versus Sweden there. You see yeah. those? Asa Hartford wearing that beautiful Scottish shirt, right? Yep. See it with the, with the Umbro diamonds down the, uh, down the sleeve, right? Um, so a couple of years ago, Umbro, which, which I, is, is kind of re- rebranded now a little bit as a kind of a streetwear brand certainly in america it's a it's kind of a stylish streetwear brand they i came across an umbro tracksuit top in target which is you know like a big popular store here and they had umbro section but they had the basically a tracksuit that was that scottish shirt in the tracksuit form without the scottish emblem right without the scottish emblem so i brought i bought it for my son and uh Anyway, I bought it because I just thought it looked, it reminded me so much of that Scotland kit. Anyway, I go to Ireland a few months later, and as it happens, a friend of mine's mom has has just died, and uh, I go to the, I happen to be in Ireland, so I so I'll go to the funeral. So my son comes with me, and he's wearing, he's wearing the tracksuit top, the Umbro diamonds down the side, and uh, we get to the church, and another old friend of mine, I spot him in sitting in the pews, so I go in, I sidle up next to him, and, uh, you know, he knows my son and whatever. And next thing he leans over, he goes, love the Scottish 82 tracksuit. <laughs> like, he, had, he hadn't seen me in, in a couple of years, like, but it was like, love the Scottish 82 tracksuit. <laughs> you know, because that, all, you know, people of, of our generation would look at that and immediately associate yeah, it with yeah. that, you know. Uh, so I was going to look at uh, page 12 there, we've got the worldwide uh, column of Chris Davis. One wee thing I wanted to pick out was down at the bottom, but it says Pele is still much sought after. He was recently a judge for the Miss Universe beauty competition taken by Miss Venezuela. The, the, the great sadness of growing up, I think, is discovering what a shill Pele was. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you know, you grow up watching Giants of Brazil, you know, the, the great video of, of, of the glory years of Brazil and Pele and whatever. And, you know, I mean, he obviously was before my time, but he, you know, you just, I just associate him now with Viagra, uh, with Sprice, you know, <laughs> with every, you know, he was very involved. And in, do you remember Freddie Adu, the, the teenage yeah, wonder yeah. kid? It was a very sad story, like, um, you know, made his debut at 14 for, 
for DC United in Major League Soccer and, and Pele and himself had an ad running. The kid was making his debut at 14 and, and Pele and himself did an ad for Sprite because Pele obviously still is very big in America. And, and, and I just thought, you know, Pele, there's nothing Pele won't do for, for money, you know, which is... <laughs> Obviously, judging the Miss Universe probably wasn't his most onerous thing he ever had to do for money, but um, there you go. Hmm. There was there was actually in a magazine that we looked at recently with Craig Brown. We never talked about it, I don't think. But there was an article worldwide about Pele, and it said that he scored in a exhibition match. He scored his one thousand two hundred sixty fourth goal of his career, and so I obviously thought, let's do the maths in this because this so. If he made his debut at 15, let's say he's played for 25 years solid, that means he had to score 50 goals every single season for 25 years. Now, he did score 643 league games and 656 for Santos and 92 for Brazil and 64 for Cosmos. So let's say around 830 goals. So that means he scored 434 goals in other competitions. By that, we probably mean warm-ups and five-a-sides yeah. and things like that. He's, yeah, I, I take him with a large pinch of shit. But hang on, is that counting the overhead kick in Escape to Victory? <laughs> Someone did say that to me. That, that probably you know, that yeah. probably counts as double. Like, you know, they, they put in a couple of versions of the goal in the finished cut of the movie, so maybe he's counting it more than once. I think, I think he maybe gets likes of um, every time it's shown, he gets another goal for it. Maybe that's what's <laughs> happened. That's um, it, Absolutely. All right, so we've got a limited time now. I think we've only got about 10 minutes or so uh, with you, Dave. So if, if we jump to the Wolves team group then, Love uh, it. in the middle, and then we'll go to the, then we'll go to the letters page. Uh, so Wolves uh, team group here in that classic old gold kit uh, with the Umbro Diamonds free flowing down the, down the side. So interesting, uh, some names like what we're saying there that you just associate with, with Wolves. A couple of wee things I wanted to point out from there. It seems Andy Gray and Kenny Hibbert are wearing <laughs> matching necklaces. Yep. There you go. <laughs> and if, if, if you look at, there's, there's about five of the players in this team group who are actually looking at this camera, uh, and the rest of them seem to be looking at another another photographer. Well, there's a couple of things too. First of all, I think the shirt is beautiful. Like I just think oh, every shirt that I see in this magazine from 1981, I think is better than the shirt that the club is wearing or using today, right? Yeah. Um, it's a tale of two haircuts, Andy Gray's haircut, which is unbelievably, incredibly naff. And then of course, George Berry's Afro, which again, you know, George Burry's Afro, I associate that with, with Wolves. You know, I thought he was a great centre-half and the hair. You know, you remember him because of the, the incredible haircut. Um, now, Andy, Andy Gray was a shoot columnist. Yeah. I think it was probably, was it before this or after this that he was with shoot, that he, he had a column? Because that brings back my childhood, uh, a traumatic childhood memory of, of Andy Gray coming back from the summer. Remember like when players used to have, you know, they would disappear for a couple of months and stuff in the summer. And then he came back and he wrote a column about um, visiting one of the members of Black Sabbath in LA, <laughs> right? Uh, it was, I think it was Black Sabbath. Yeah, Black Sabbath are from Birmingham, right? And he was friendly with a couple of the lads from Black Sabbath. And Andy had this beautiful picture of himself wearing an incredibly skimpy pair of Speedos poolside in the uh, poolside in Los Angeles, you know, uh, in the LA mansion of Tony Iommi or whichever, <laughs> whichever member of, of, I don't think it was Ozzy Osbourne, I know that, I know it wasn't Ozzy Osbourne, uh, but I think it might have been Tony Iommi. Um, and I, I just remember, I have that vivid, vivid memory of, of that. Are you looking for it right now, Andy? Yeah, I've got it here. <laughs> you stick that on Twitter later on then? <laughs> that one there. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm glad I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm glad I wasn't making that up. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, yeah. know, you know, the other thing that strikes me of this as well is like, and, and I know anybody who's on Twitter loves that, you know, old, old football, footballers, well, aging footballers are, well, I forget the, the person I follow, you know, who puts up pictures of the footballers from the 70s yeah, he's, and 80s. He's footballers aging badly. Yeah, and you're like, even in this one, like, they all, to me, look like middle-aged men. <laughs> yeah. 
as a middle-aged man today, like they look like middle-aged men and you look, you know, I'm sure they weren't. Like I'm sure, you know, they were all, a lot of them were in their twenties and stuff like that. And, um, and the other name of course is Mickey Kearns, the goalkeeper, uh, or one of the goalkeepers there, Paul Bradshaw was the other one. Mickey Kearns was another Irish international. Um, he was actually usually the sub goalie for Ireland, but, but he would have been involved, you know, involved in Irish squads around that time as well. Yeah, other wee thing I noticed is uh, right at, at the bottom left there, at the bottom right, is we look Wayne Clark. He's got his socks almost up over his knee, which I think is a kind of modern invention, but he's yeah. almost got his socks over his knees. Yeah, and, and, you know, the other thing, like, again, which is real, we're old fogies complaining about the world today. <laughs> look at all those beautiful black boots. You know, yeah. look, at, look at our black boots with white stripes. You know, those were the days. And also, um, with that, it's probably anybody had a pair of those sort of boots when you were wee. You, you would try and keep the, the dubbing or the polish on the black bits, oh. but you know that the white bits would eventually become grey. And I can see that in a few of those there as well. So, you know, it's not as if they, they get a brand new pair of boots to start no. every season, is it? No, and, and the thing about, you know, it's all about the dobbing and the cleaning is like they were cleaned by, by 15 year old boys. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like they those were the, t- I know that that doesn't happen today, but like those were the times the apprentices would clean the boots, right? And mm-hmm. and, and all sorts of other ignominious tasks that they were given, uh, which I think today would, would be classified as kind of sort of abusive, like cleaning the toilets and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But that's when the apprentices genuinely were apprentices. Yeah. I've just noticed, Tom, you, you talk about the, the strip that they have where they have the, the Wolves badge and the WW. But the mm-hmm. WW is on the shorts. If you look at the the coach there, um, or the physio, so heads on the on it. Yeah, because there is one with the WWs in the middle of the strip, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and the three wolves, and then look at the WW. That was the strip sort of before right, this one. Yeah, it was the wolves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're we're coming up for the last few minutes. Then, so if we can jump on to page thirty-one with the letters page, and uh, see if we can have a look at a couple of the letters here. Uh, so stop the hugging. Is a letter there, G.H. Hollyoak from Coylton. With the new season underway, we are all looking forward to plenty of goals, but one thing we could do without is the hugging and embracing that follows them. It is not only idiotic, but positively dangerous to engage in these antics, especially with players changing hands at £1 million plus. How, for instance, will an insurance company react to a claim for an injury to a star player inflicted by a euphoric teammate? Well, they, they, they were right. Steve Morrow, <laughs> it was a few years down the line, but was yeah, it Steve Tony Morrow? Adams. Yeah, and, and Tony Adams. But it's, uh, yeah, the, the funny thing, you know, they, they were worried about the, can you imagine if Mr. Holyoke, and I presume it was a Mr. Holyoke, was still around when they started doing those coordinated celebrations. <laughs> you know? yeah. Robbie Keane was doing his pistols firing into the crowd, <laughs> kind of, you know, geez, you know, the game is gone kind of territory there for that yeah. poor man, you know. Um, very, very different, uh, a different world, you know. It wasn't, you know, I, I guess that was the start of, of that whole kind of, you know, people actually celebrate it. Yeah. Well, it's, people it's, celebrate it when they score. Yeah, I mean, it is when, when you look back in old games, how they just sort of, sometimes they don't, they, they'll just go up to a person and shake their hand and they'll just start walking back and you think, where, where is the celebration? I'm I'm fine with people celebrating. I'm, I'm, that scoring goals are is what football is ultimately all about, you know. And if well, you can't well, celebrate that, then there there's a there's a problem here with uh, with baseball. There's a lot of problems with baseball actually, but there's a problem here where all the old white men who watch baseball, right? Because it's a the sports demographic is largely middle aged and older white males, and they have brilliant young players who are flamboyant and do things like flip the bat after they hit a home run and they want it banned. They want it stopped. You know, it's guy, guys like showing any sort of emotion or flamboyance when they do something great. Um, they're trying to crack down on that. You know, they, they, they were calls and that's in 2020, like or 2021. They're, they're cracking down on that stuff. They don't want that kind of coming into the game. You know, you hit the home run, you jog around the bases, um, you don't flip the bat in celebration. It's unseemly in some way. And the last uh, last wee thing to look at then is the letter uh, headed Naughty Nobby. So <laughs> this is a complaint about the cartoon 
uh, Nobby, and it's a complaint that comes from Graham Kelly, Secretary of the Football League, and he says, I don't know which club Nobby is with, but none of our teams has to travel 300 miles to an away match on Boxing Day, cartoon August 29th. The computer is programmed to avoid excessive travelling to games over the holiday period. Also, computer is not spelt C-O-M-P-U-T-O-R. At least ours isn't. And uh, should have replied, we ought to show Nobby a red card, but we can't even do that now. Uh, I assume this was the period where they kind of stopped doing the yellow and red cards uh, for a while in English football league. I, I love that the secretary of the football league with 92 clubs to look after right? and all the attendant problems facing the game. You know, this was the era of hooliganism, etc. or everything going on. And Graham Kelly sat down and wrote or dictated a letter to shoot com- complaining about a cartoon. It's just, it's fantastic. You know, when you think about it also shows you how important shoot was, you know, that, that like this was, shoot was a big part of the culture of the game like in a way that you know with the best will in the world 442 or any of these magazines today are not i mean they're peripheral publications these days but this was central because i'm sure graham kelly saw that this was every young boy and maybe a lot of girls in england at the time in scotland and wales and ireland were looking at this magazine and and this was their gospel kind of thing I'm wondering why he thought to take them to task about it. I mean, it sort of suggests that he was getting a bit of pressure or people complaining about it, which just seems really strange thing to happen. Um, but Absolutely. I, but again, just back to what you said earlier on about how players were talking about fellow players without any sort of uh, filter on them. Um, and, and in the articles as well, so the likes of the, the Tartan Talks and the, the Ray Clemens ones, I always thought that they were quite honest and open in those as well. And here we have somebody from the FA, you know, the Football League, writing in. And it's just like, it, it's changed so much now. People have to be careful what they say. They have to do it through yep. the right channels. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about this, actually being honest, open and reaching the people. And, 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 you know, the, the other thing is, is like that they, it showed you that they read shoot. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. That in the football league offices, they were reading shoot. Like, you know, it, that to me is, is incredible. Like that the same thing that you would 9 and 10, 11 were reading this religiously, they, they were perusing it maybe to see like what Gordon McQueen said or, or, or what, you know, uh, what Ray Clemens said. Did anybody say anything? Brian Robson who, who features in this one, you know, anybody else say something that was not, you know, not appropriate or over the line in some way. All right, so before we let you go then, if you can d- just tell us where people can find you, where people can read your work and what you're, what you're up to. Um, well, I, I, I write a weekly column in the Irish Times uh, called America at Large, uh, which is on the website, which is basically a, a look at a sports, a sports story from America in, in a given week. Um, it can be about anything. It can be about the NBA. It can be last week's was about the only Catholic priest to play in a major league baseball game. <laughs> um, you know, it can be an arcane story from uh, there's actually an interesting story up there about when Eintracht, Eintracht Frankfurt scored uh, or toured America and played a very famous game against Celtic, an infamous game against Celtic, uh, kind of a bloodbath. Uh, in New York, uh, where Celtic fought Eintracht Frankfurt. So it can be anything to do with American sport, a lot of American sports history in, intersecting with Ireland and, and, and England, or I'm sorry, Britain to, to an extent as well. So that's it. Um, I'm on Twitter and um, my books are available on Amazon and uh, stuff like that. Places it's like that. Oh, it's been a pleasure, David. It's, just, it's been too short. We yeah. need to get you on again if. Absolutely, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate this trip down memory lane. You know, who doesn't like to talk about when they were 10? And the, and the world seems so full of possibilities. Exactly. No, listen, thank you very much. It's been it's an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks a million, guys. Have a good one. Cheers, right, cheers Dave. Thanks. Bye-bye. Our charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, 
school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank.